morning, everybody. Good morning and welcome, everybody. You're listening to The Breakfast Show on Faith FM 87.6, 87.8 or 88. Right across Australia, right across the Faith FM network. Positively different radio in the morning. You are with Lyle and Daniel Collier. Daniel, welcome to the show. We're glad to have you back on the show again. Daniel spent a little bit of time here on Faith FM in the past and filling in for Lawson while Lawson is away at Big Camp. It was a fantastic experience and I jumped at the chance to come back and give it another go. Absolutely amazing. So Daniel, tell us this morning, what are you thankful for? I'm thankful for God's leading in our lives. And specifically? Oh, look, I, I could give you thousands of specifics, <laughs> but... Just, just well, I was just wondering, did something happen this morning that was God's leading, or just, uh, or is it just, just, just a general thankfulness for God's leading? It's been, been in the past couple of weeks. What prompted the comment? Employment. Em- okay. Unexpected employment. Unexpected employment, that's in good. In a field of interest. And, like, my wife's a teacher, so she has school holidays off, and our little man is currently sick. Yes. Oh. And so I've been having to run around and, and have meetings and do paperwork and catch up on college stuff, and she's been able to take care of him. We've shared responsibilities for it. She's done the most of the work. And it's just been great that I've had an opportunity to be able to fix this stuff up, get it ready for the future and whatever processes it holds. And it's just amazing because you don't always think that things are going to happen. Like you've got this plan in your head and how it's going to go and then God just smacks you and it goes sideways and all of a sudden you realise the path he put you on now is way better than the one you first considered. So praise the Lord. Nice. Nice. Very nice. Ah, praise God. Well, I'm thankful for the opportunity to go camping. Did a bit of camping over the weekend. Was up in the mountains. It was minus four. In the mountains. Oh, so that was me complaining this morning about minus one out of greed is nothing. <laughs> <laughs> it was uh, quite brisk, but uh, did have some beautiful days up there in uh, the mountains in the Walker area, in fact. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM. Positively different. Okay, so positively different news. The first story this morning, and this one kind of hits close to home in a way from my past, but we're going to talk about reindeer viaducts. Now, these are right. bridges that are oh, created yes, 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 across yes. highways uh-huh. because over in Sweden they have migration seasons. Yes. And what usually happens is the roads get closed for a particular period of time, very short period of time, by police or law enforcement or authorities, allowing access for the reindeer herders to take them across the other side so they can process and go on about their migration. Unfortunately, you can't control the time that needs to happen. No, no, the reindeer make that decision themselves. When they're ready, they're ready, they're going. And sometimes you get some early birds and sometimes you get some stragglers. Yep. And so you've got this path going across a major highway, super highway. Yes. And they're sitting there going, this, this is ridiculous. Like it's very difficult for us to process it through. So they've actually built these bridges that go across the top of the road allowing them to have access to let the reindeer go across. It's kind of like we have uh, a similar thing here in Australia across our freeways where you sort of have those, um, you know, those high ropes that, uh, you know... That's that's the the connection I'm making because I used to live in Foster and I was dating a girl at the time. We both had family back in the Newcastle area and every weekend we'd drive back and we'd drive along and I'd see those ropes across the top, the netted ropes, which were for squirrels and smaller wildlife. Not squirrels. Not squ- what awesomes. Whatever. <laughs> <laughs> Little furry things across. Yeah, yeah, critters. Critters. <laughs> critters. Very critters. And I never once saw a single animal runner. And that was, you know, six months of driving back to Newcastle. Okay, so the way you Foster. the way you do that is if you, if you get uh, you put spotlights on the front of your car and you aim one of them at the sky. 
so that while you're driving because the, our, our critters go across nocturnally yeah. and you'll see their red eyes going across like ah oh, there goes a possum but just sitting there thinking I'd, I'd love it just one day to see one of my how much money was spent on this is it being used I feel like it isn't <laughs> that was from my daytime point of view so apparently they set cameras up and apparently they're quite popular there you go it's pretty cool it's just awesome. Cool. Little, I would personal just, I would love to be a, just a possum for one night, just so that I could <laughs> just so I could wander around and uh, and go across one of those bridges. That's awesome. But this this basically has broken uh, centuries worth of difficulty. There's yes, never been, been anything like this before in the areas, and they've provided a wonderful way for these herders to get their animals across. Mm-hmm. When they need to. Because so these domestic ones or are these um, wild ones as well? Uh, I'm not. Or are they herding the wild ones to actually manage the... Uh, this has been an interesting question. We're going to have to talk to someone from over there and just find out how this whole uh, this whole system works. I'm sure we know somebody within that region just to find out, you know, are they, are they, are they herding wild reindeer so that they can control their migration or are they... Domestic ones are just to move some. It's like a stock route. The the uh, wild one sounds more plausible to me. It sounds like it's a really good. Yeah, when you talk about migration, you sort of think, well, if they were domestic, you'd migrate them on the back of a truck. Mm. Interesting. No, it's also provided crossing for other animals as well. Obviously, it doesn't just have to be reindeer. Yes. yes. Uh, but it's provided more more opportunities for other animals to safely get across the roads. And, and coming from a country area out here where we are. How many times do we drive along and see kangaroos on the side of the road, dead, broken legs? Well, the freeway that you and I drop, drive up and down has uh, is littered with kangaroos from time to time, and it's fully fenced. Yep. And they still get in there. Oh, they they want to go. They'll go. <laughs> and we've seen a number of big deer that have been hit. Yep. And even a cow. When I was in policing, we used to get calls about the deer out at, uh, where was it, Paxton. And call up and go, there's a, I think there's a deer on the side of the road. I'm like, yeah, mate, it's fine. Oh, but it's, what if it runs on the road? Well, we'll deal with it then, but it's sitting there right now. It's not doing anything. <laughs> Leave it alone. <laughs> if you go near it, it may run on the road. We don't want that. <laughs> but it's just one of the weirdest calls I got one day. I think there's a deer on the side of the road. And I'm like, oh, okay. And then I spoke to somebody and they're like, yeah, they're out there. I went, oh, I've never seen one. And then sure enough, a month yep, or two later, driving are. along, saw one and just went, well, I'll be. There you go. There's a deer out at Paxton. In fact, there is a deer in quite a few places around here. Their population is is growing. They're becoming quite the invasive pest species. It's always a disaster, you know, when we introduce new animals into the environment. Yeah. Anyway. It's, it's unfortunate, but it happens. And they're pretty nasty when you hit them with a car, too. It's, it's like <laughs> the they beefy, make a mess. Big, beefy things. All right, second one is a really interesting story. So this is about the first ever published graphic novel written by homeless people and utilising their experiences in homelessness, uh, domestic violence relationships, abuse, violence. So there's a place in London called the Accumulate Art School for the Homeless. Sorry, I lost my place for a second there. And they provide an opportunity for homeless people to engage in creative projects so they can come along and they can do sculpting or art or drawing They can do writing and provide their experiences. And so they've put together this graphic novel that encompasses a whole wide variety of different experiences of people who were or are homeless and, you know, couch surf or shelters or literally have no place to live, no fixed place of abode. And the sales of this book have now provided enough money for the school to provide a scholarship for one more person to attend and 
help them train up for an opportunity to get employment. That's pretty cool. That's very cool. And I was like, that's such a, such a wonderful ministry opportunity there to provide somebody with an avenue to get into the world and provide a circumstance where they can be sustainable for themselves. Now, when you say a, uh, a graphic book, that's a book with um, pictures and so forth in it, so it sort of gives you a, you know, picture speaks a thousand words, obviously. Yep. And uh, talks about, it would be, it's, it's an interesting um it's interesting, I've given Bible studies, you know, particularly when I worked in Sydney and worked in the Sydney CBD and so forth, um, had Bible studies with quite a few homeless people. And sometimes you would find them, you know, at a shelter or sometimes you'd find them couch surfing and you'd start Bible studies with them and they'd tell their story of being homeless in the past and then, you know, you meet up with them the next week and they're like, yeah, now we're back on the streets again and you'd study with them for, you know, several months or so and they're living out on the streets. It's a different world out there mm. and it's surprising. Um, it's, it's just remarkable how you get some highly intelligent, capable people whose lives can spiral out of control so fast and they just end up on the streets. There's actually a story, I don't remember the specifics of it, so I'll give a brief overview because we don't have time for me to fumble over the ideas of what it is. There's a guy who's the CEO of a company. Once a month, every 12 months, he leaves his wallet, ID, licence, all that at home, gets himself a little rucksack, some basic clothes, and he goes out boxcar, train boxcar jumping, eating out of bins, finding whatever he can. He literally goes and lives this life of freedom because he's such in such a high-end CEO job. He just needs that kind of release, and his wife completely supports him in it. I don't know how much freedom there is eating out of bins, but, you know, there are other aspects of that life that, yeah, it could be quite appealing, you know. Everybody loves going camping at times. You're listening to The Breakfast Show Podcast on Faith FM, positively different. All right. Let's talk about some more serious news. So in 1974... A powerful warrior arrived in Vanuatu. He was married to a uh, wealthy white woman. And uh, during his visit there, he uh, gave a gift of a white pig to a couple of small villages, and they have worshipped him ever since. As you do. And the reason behind this is that they had a prophecy. They had a prophecy about a group of warriors who had left for uh, some faraway islands uh, back in their past. These warriors had um, gone to defend the village from and to defend the world from various evil forces. And the prophecy was that they would one day return uh, in a different form, but the spirit would return, the spirit of these warriors would return. And the chief of these warriors would at that time, at the time of his return, be married to a very wealthy white woman. And so when Prince Philip and Queen Elizabeth arrived in Vanuatu in 1974, they found a warrior who was married to a white and wealthy woman and have worshipped him ever since. That's a pretty broad circumstance it is of a, a pretty broad, prophetic film. It is a pretty broad circumstance, but uh, when he gifted them a white pig, they 
were definitely very excited about that and uh, recognised that, uh, or they, they, they recognised who they believed to be the fulfilment of this particular prophecy. And uh, thus began the Prince Philip movement. And so at this particular time, out of all of the people around the world who are in mourning, these guys are probably mourning a little bit more than others. Mm-hmm. It's interesting to look at some of these alternative religions uh, that pop up in developing countries from time to time based on you know various prophecies and so forth and traditions that have been handed down and how they end up being interpreted. And it's also going to be very interesting about how the death of Prince Philip is going to be handled by, you know, this particular group. Um, of course, they fly the Union Jack and in, in there's, t- there's two villages that are a part of this movement. They fly the Union Jack and they've been flying at half mast ever since uh, Prince Philip died. Um, and uh, but, yeah, this is the uh, this is the, the Prince Philip cult. Began, began back then, and ever since 1974, they've had semi-regular communication with the royal family, with Prince Philip in particular. He's taken a particular interest in this community and has even hosted five of the leaders and elders at Windsor Castle on one occasion. Um, but looking forward, uh, what they're saying is that the spirit of this warrior always passes down through a male descendant. And so, you know, we would naturally think, well, then that would go to Prince Charles. But the uh, the islanders in Vanuatu have stated that it doesn't have to go to Prince Charles. It can go to any male descendant of any age. So you've got three, four to choose from? Yeah, you've got, there's, there's a number there to choose yeah. from. Well, you've got um, Charles, Harry, uh, William and, you know, Archie, Archie, um, etc. So uh, it can pass down to any male descendant and they have left it up to the royal family to decide. Just it's just bizarre this human worship, this idolization of a human figure. You know, we sit here and we say that, but then as Christians, have you ever noticed what we do with our celebrity pastors? It's not that far different. Don't you tar me with that brush? <laughs> <laughs> you know, I've I've uh, worked from occasion on on occasion with various celebrity pastors and seen you know how people actually sort of treat them. Mm, they've you know, elevated them above their position. I was working with one guy in in Sydney. We were running a major evangelistic program there, and after the program, when you know he was walking back to his hotel, people would follow him down the street, like at a distance. Just, just follow him down the street, just watching him. And I'm thinking, guys, this is, this is, this is just another human being like you and I. We should be following Jesus Christ. Amen. And uh, it can become very, very unhealthy. And this is one of the reasons why we have so much, you know, bizarre and crazy things within Christianity is that we get people who follow human beings rather than following Jesus and the Word of God. Yep. And when you follow Jesus and the Word of God, you will never go wrong. You follow Prince Philip, and you know sometimes Prince Philip did some great stuff. At other times, he did some pretty controversial things and said some pretty <laughs> controversial things and some things that you know uh, you certainly wouldn't want to emulate. And to, you know, I don't know of the context of uh, you know lots of the accusations that have been made, but it's kind of like yeah, you know what? Let's not go there. See, that's anyway. a pretty pastor thing. There's an easy way around that these days. Run up, get your phone, take a selfie, done. You've got that picture forever. You don't need to follow him. Indeed. 
All right, so if you go to, uh, heading over to Russia, we did say we go to Russia, Alexei Navalny, uh, who is the Russian opposition leader, has uh, just started a lawsuit. It's interesting, this guy um, manages to stay in the headlines regardless of what happens, and the Russians just seem to play into his hands because they're always giving him space to jump into the headlines. But uh, he has launched a lawsuit from prison against the prison that he is being uh, held at because he has no access to his Quran. So he decided that you know, studying the Quran was going to be a part of his self-improvement uh, plan while he was serving his time in prison. And they have not allowed him access to his Quran, and so he has sued them. Now, I'm somebody who is, you know, as you know, religious liberty is a big issue for me, and I don't care what kind of religion you have, whether it's the Prince Philip uh, cult or whether it's, you know, Islam or Christianity or Hinduism or anything like that. Everybody has the freedom to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, and we should respect people's freedom to worship according to the dictates of their conscience, and on occasions respectfully disagree with them if need be mm. um, and this is you know you look at something like this and the, 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 the bizarre thing is and you kind of, kind of see where, where this has all gone wrong because uh, he's ordered a number of books but they have not been provided to him because they have to be inspected for extremism first of course like the Quran, like they've never read the Quran before, like the, Russia, which has millions and millions and millions of Muslims in it, and many millions of those, well, many, many of those, not millions, but many of those that would be incarcerated from time to time, have not read the Quran and inspected it for extremism and can't give an answer as to whether he can have his Quran or not. Mm. You know, this is pretty bizarre. It is. And it's kind of like, you know, Russia, if you want to, if you want this guy to stay out of the news, because really this is, a large amount of what he's doing, you know, he's going on a hunger strike um, because he's getting back and leg pain because he has to stand at attention for hours uh, during rope roll call, you know, all of these uh, issues happening. He, he, he catches uh, disease, he's placed into a ward where there are a whole bunch of TB pa- patients, you know, and in today's world of electronic media, you just kind of... He's just kind of feeding the problem. Mm. It's like, give the guy his Quran already, give him his religious liberty, and don't give him any, an excuse to be starting lawsuits uh, if you don't want him to get, be getting lots of publicity right around the world. Sort of relates to what's going on in China right now too, doesn't it? Does, it does, very much so. Doing exactly the same thing and falling into exactly the same trap with the Uyghur Muslim community. Anyway, I did say that we would talk about UFOs. Yes, please, go. Okay, so this is actually a really interesting one because the Pentagon has confirmed the authenticity of video clips showing four UFOs hovering over a US Navy destroyer at sea. One of them, three of them in the form of orbs and one of them in the form of an Egyptian pyramid. Mm. And this, of course, was taken with uh, night vision cameras, which, you know, the US has some pretty fancy night vision stuff today. And so uh, it's pretty clear footage. It's got a lot of people uh, wondering. That was actually leaked to um, um, the film director of um, Area 51 and Flying Saucers uh, documentary and to George Knapp, who is a a Las Vegas uh, news anchor. And the Pentagon has confirmed that this was authentic. So what do we do with UFOs? Well, UFOs, unidentifying flying objects, they could be, you know, man-made technology, or they could be coming from the spirit world. That is something that exists. The Bible speaks about it. You're listening to The Breakfast Show podcast on Faith FM. 
positively different. Um, joining us on the phone this morning, as always on Wednesday, is David Haupt. David, welcome to the show. Good morning, Lyle, and good morning to your listeners. Now, David, I understand that you've been working up at a uh, Christian camp this week, and so you are sort of joining us on the on the mobile phone this morning from uh, Stewart's Point. I, I have been, been busy, and had to travel a few kilometres to try and get a proper signal. We appreciate the effort that you've put in to be on the show this morning. It's great to be back. David, we've been talking about addictions for the last few weeks, and I wanted to ask a question as we sort of, you know, come to a bit of an end of this uh, series on addictions. Uh, but one of the questions that I want to ask is, you know, we see a rising, you know, if we, if we look back over the last 50, 100 years or so, we see very much a rise in the level of addiction. So when we when we talk about addictions, we're not just talking about substance abuse, but, you know, in recent years, of course, we've had uh, things like pornography. Of course, gambling has been there for a long time, all kinds of different addictions. And uh, it seems like it is exploding around the world as a pandemic. What I'm wondering is this. Is there a correlation between what we're seeing in the rise of addictive behavior and the decline in spirituality well I've shot through a a photo screenshot of a slide that I've got and a statement that I'd like to read out to you and your listeners Um, Basil Jackson writes the following he says by far the most important cause of drug abuse is the existence of a spiritual religious and existential vacuum It seems that young people today lack foundational value systems from stable family units, are constantly looking for meaningful models of identification in those places in society. When they fail to find them, they are left to struggle on their own with an increased sense of frustration, lack of purpose and meaninglessness. As materialism becomes a God, there has been a simultaneous humanization of God, such a human production of God, however, will always fail to fill a sense of emptiness and to infuse any sense of value, hope or meaning in the existence of a young person. Thus again, adolescents become likely prospects for the psychochemical experience, fascination with the occult, and have the prerequisites for the development of anti-establishing delinquent activities. What a mouthful, but it actually confirms exactly what your question is all about. It almost seems like when you read a statement like that, that a secular person who doesn't believe in God would do well to raise their uh, children in a Christian environment just so that they can see their children succeed and not, you know, succumb to addictive substances. Time and time and again, when we find in uh, addictive research that um, there is always that that sense of lacking in in a person's life. Uh, In other words, they're trying to fill it up with something that is far more meaningful. Uh, And I guess we can look at addictions from, uh, you know, or or the response to addictions and what spirituality has to offer in seven elements. Namely, it gives us a sense of purpose. In other words, it helps us to, to be contributing back to society. It gives us a sense of presence so that we're so essential for recovery. Connecting to something greater than ourselves. 
in other words, if I do not have spirituality in my life, what do I fill that emptiness, that void with? Especially if I grow up in a home where there is a disconnection happening. And we see so often in young people where there is a disconnection in the family that they do turn to addictive behaviors. Mm-hmm. And, you know, you, you, you look at... Um I guess young people in particular, we all want our young people to grow up without, you know, destroying their lives with addiction. Um, I'm here with uh, joining me this morning as our co-host is um, Daniel Collier, who's a former police officer and has seen, you know, I guess, Daniel, you would have seen a lot of young people, you know, falling into this trap of addiction um, and you know, just recognizing that the spiritual, you know, as, as this statement says, you know, the ex- existential vacuum, no sort of value, no, no understanding of where did I come from? Why am I here? Mm, definitely. Um, and so, David, how do we actually reach out to people like this who have grown up with this concept of, well, there's no God, there's no reason for existence, evolution just sort of brought us about by accident, I didn't ask to be here, now I am here. Um, how do we how do we reach out to people like this that are in that kind of a mindset? Are they open to talking about spiritual things as a general rule? I think spirituality and Christianity has, has uh, in many cases, uh, negated or, or neglected their role in helping uh, these kind of people. Because it's not an easy group to work with. You really have to, and I'm putting inverted commas, get your hands dirty. You need to get involved in their lives. Uh, but when some Christians that have worked with me uh, are willing to really engage with this group of people, really connect with them, journey with them, walk with them, it actually activates them towards something greater than themselves. Uh, And spirituality, I have found uh, the moment that people open themselves up to some spirituality, they immediately see a reaction, positive reaction towards change. Remember, Lyle, that uh, spirituality asks us for accountability. Yes. And modern society wants to move away from accountability, but it's accountability that really gives us direction and a sense of purpose. So I'm, I'm sitting here with two people at the moment who have both worked in uh, in the area of addictions, but from very different perspectives. And so Daniel, of course, has worked in the police force and, you know, a lot of the addictive drugs. Not all of them, by any stretch of the imagination, there is so much addictive material out there and substances that are not illegal. But, you know, Daniel, you've worked with it from the legal perspective, and I totally support the idea that, you know, a lot of the... All of these substances should be illegal, um, but you've worked from the perspective of placing people in, you know, incarceration or whatever it might be, and I guess a punishment for addiction. David, you've worked more from the other perspective of leading people to Christ. Um, help me out, guys. How effective? <laughs> uh, how effective do you see these uh, these these two different uh, strategies? I guess. Um, in reaching out and helping people with addictions? When you look at it from a law enforcement perspective, the outcome is punitive. It's a punishment. You've done something wrong, therefore you'll get a sentence or a fine. There are programs available, community programs available for people who are struggling with drugs and need to get off those addictions. But it really comes from a very basic secular point of view 
you've done wrong, you've gotten punished. They're not getting to the root of the problem, which is where I think David's side really comes in powerfully because you can look at the circumstances of why this person is deep-seated in these problems, where the addiction started, how it came about, how they're such a slave to this with the emptiness of not having Christ in their life, they've had to fill it with something else. The side that I came from was very much an overhanded, heavy-handed sort of response as opposed to there's a bigger problem here and how do we get to the root of it and prevent it from occurring in the future. So, David, I've always seen a role for both both sides of this um, equation with, you know, the heavy-handed, you, you know, you need to wake up, you need to realise where you are um, and, you know, snap out of it kind of thing. But then once that happens, uh, follow that up with, you know, um, getting to the root of the problem, which this statement indicates is, you know, when it really boils it down is spirituality. Mm. What's been your experience of working with uh, addictive people? Have you worked with people that the police have uh, passed on to you? They've come through the court systems. And uh, how effective does this system actually, is this, the, is this the direction that we should be going? Interesting, as we worked in, in Cabramatta during the height of the heroin addiction and Cabramatta being the drug capital of Australia, um, people were coming to us, screaming to us from prison. In other words, the moment that they were released from prison, uh, I eventually heard that the word was in prison, that there's one center that really cares truly cares about people and if you get out if you really want to get off your drugs, go to Cabramatta search for the address centre and they are the people that really help. The phenomenal part of our program was that it was staffed by volunteers people that um, were from every walks of life but came in to do some training and really cared about people. From a psychological perspective, the, the way that we deal uh, with addictions from policing as well as from uh, psychiatry is that we look at the symptom and we deal with the symptom, but we never deal with the cause. When it comes from a Christian perspective, we actually look at the causative issues that leads to addiction and we focus on trying to address those causative issues. In many of those people, there was a lack of connectedness with uh, important care and many of my staff, some of the older people, became uh, a pop or nan to uh, a young person that had lost their pop or nan that had a meaningful influence in their life. And as that older person started to journey with them, it gave them a sense of importance. It gave them a sense of belonging and a sense of wanting to live up to the confidence and the care that has been presented in them. And that activates them towards change in their life. And then we start to deal with, uh, from a psychological perspective, helping them step by step to overcome and uh, give them the ability to deal with the the stresses and the traumas in their life. How much... And it was very effective. Yeah, yeah, yeah. How much... um, uh, Working there in Cabramatta, how much of, I guess, you might call them your clientele, came to you as a result of, say, police action at some particular point as compared to, I just need to get my life clean, I'm going to go and find someone to help? Those people that really wanted to change their life, police police officers sometimes would bring them in or direct them to us. We were part of a team effort. We, We met on a regular basis with police, with council, with other agencies. So we were not working in isolation and... um, 
So uh, the, the police referred many people. Years later, I developed a program in Blacktown where we actually worked with people that were incarcerated and, and they would be escorted into our service. And based on the same principles, we would work with them. And in the field of criminology, you never talk of a change greater than 8% uh, in a therapeutic year. And very quickly using volunteers, building relationships with people, we had a drop in recidivism of 32% to the level that Attorney General's department just shook their head and said, we've never seen these figures before. So fundamentally in our program was emulating the love and the care of Christ towards people, but at the same time teaching people responsibility, accountability. And this, this is what police brings in. They bring accountability. If uh, and, and so often young people that do not live in a life or grow up in a home of accountability often fall off the rails. Mm. Um, just, you know, talking about that, that whole experience, do you find that there's been a trend, I guess, sometimes amongst some of the Christian, you know, faith-based organisations to move away from the spiritual aspect, a, a, a shyness or a hesitancy to include the spiritual aspect. I know that in some government uh, agencies they leave that out, you know, purposely because they're like, we're not trying to push a religion. Has there has there been a, a certain hesitancy and has that uh, been created a detrimental effect amongst some Christian organisations dealing with addiction? I've had a very personal experience in answering your question. I was invited by an interagency meeting to be a guest presenter, speak on a certain certain topic to them. And when I asked them what the topic was, they pinpointed an individual and said, please tell us what you've done with client X. I said to them, who's client X trying to keep their confidentiality? They said, uh, look, we know he's your client. We've worked with him for, for four years with no changes, been with your organization for a few months, and we can't believe the transformation. When I met with them, I, I discovered that they were actually faith-based agencies that had given up on this spiritual component. A spirituality is frowned upon in therapy, but it is in actual fact the most powerful source of transformation in people's lives. And that is what happens with client X. Phenomenal change uh, in, in his life because of an introduction, not of a church dogma, but of spirituality, of, of, of God himself. Mm. It, it, is, it is not religion that changes people. It is God that brings about that change. David Howard, thank you so much for joining us this morning. We always appreciate what you have to share. Thanks for being a part of the Faith FM family. Join our community on Facebook or get in touch at 1-800-FAITH-FM.